Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Everybody doing well? Glad that you're here. I got the thumbs up from Miss Shelley, so that's good. So we're, uh, we're glad you're here this morning. Excited to be here as always to, with our faith family and to just worship together in spirit and truth to know that uh, God's brought us here for a reason and for a purpose and, and that is to worship him, to celebrate Jesus together. Uh, but for him to also do something remarkable in our life. And so I, I don't know about you, but I look forward to every week just being impacted by, by God's presence in my life and the things that he teaches me are, are new each and every day, and I hope they are for you as well. Uh, I want to I ask you something here this morning. How many of you can believe that it's, it's only two weeks away from Easter? Amen? I mean, that, how many of you enjoy Easter Sunday? Amen? You enjoy celebrating Jesus together? Easter Sunday is a, is a big weekend for the church, for the life of the church. It always has been. It's a time when, uh, when we, you know, we all come together and we celebrate uh, the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and it's just two weeks away. We call it an Easter weekend because around here, it's the biggest uh, time of the year for us as a church. It's a time where we uh, start on Friday and end on Sunday, and so uh, this, this year won't be any different than that. Uh, I want to just share with you here our plans for the weekend uh, on Friday uh, afternoon at 6 p.m. We're going to have our Good Friday service. This will be a time where we as a church come together and uh, we celebrate Jesus together. It'll be a, a time of, of, of just reverent worship where we, uh, we study God's word and we move right into the Lord's Supper. I'm really looking forward to that time together. That's at 6 o'clock on Friday, and so I hope that each and every one of you will be a part of that service. We'll, we'll participate in the Lord's Supper on Friday afternoon. And then on Saturday, we have our annual Easter egg hunt, and that is a time for us as a church family to come out and celebrate with all the children of the church as they celebrate Jesus in their own way. And, and uh, we have a lot of fun together as well. And I just hope that each and every one of you will join us here on Saturday from 10 to 12. Uh, it'll be a great time uh, Saturday morning. And then Sunday... We're going to have this year three services, uh, and we're doing that because last year we had almost 4,000 in attendance, and this place got pretty crowded on, on uh, Easter Sunday, and so we're wanting to make sure that we have room for each and every person. So I want to encourage you, if you, if you want to come to the first service, uh, we'd love to have you be a part of that. That'll be at 8 o'clock. Uh, you're guaranteed a seat on that service pretty much, you know. Uh, and so that's a, that's a good uh, time. You can get out and get, get back uh, home and, and get ready for family to show up. It'll be a great time. But 8 o'clock on Sunday morning, it'll be the same service that we have in our other two services. It won't be a sunrise service. It'll be just a, a, the, same, the same thing at 8 o'clock on Sunday morning. And then let me say this. If you are typically in our, second, our, our first service, which is 915 typically, this year for Easter it's going to be 930 so make sure you get that right. If you show up at 9.15, you're going to be fighting the crowd so that's leaving. So we're, we're trying to put a little time between people leaving and coming and all of that. And so we're trying to make it easier. And I know this is the second service, so the 11 o'clock service will be the same time as normal. But we're trying to get people out of here a little bit earlier than, so that you guys can, um, you guys can, uh, can make it uh, on time. So... Uh, get in here, and it's going to be a packed day, no doubt, but it's going to be a great day as we celebrate uh, Easter together, so uh, I'm just very excited uh, about that. Also, let me just remind you that uh, just because it's going to be crowded doesn't mean that we don't need to invite people, right? Amen? 
And so a lot of you have family and friends that, uh, that you, I know you're gonna wanna invite. We have these uh, invite cards printed up and available to you as you leave here today. Wanna encourage you to take two or three of these and invite a friend or a neighbor or a coworker or a fellow student to come and just celebrate with you uh, on Easter Sunday. And so these will be made available as you leave here. Uh, and then also the final thing I wanna say in sort of a way of announcements is this, is because Easter is Easter, and, uh, and it's a busy time for us. We are in desperate need of people to serve on Easter Sunday. Uh, you just saw a testimony of the blessings of just participating uh, in, through service here on Easter Sunday. We realize it's a, um, it's a special day where maybe you're spending some time with your family. But it's a, for, for us and so many of the volunteers, it's an all-hands-on-deck kind of situation. And so we want to encourage you to sign up and and help us serve, uh, pick a service to, to, to uh, volunteer for. And we'll actually have a table sitting up right outside these doors when you leave so that if you have never signed up before, you can come and sign up. But be sure and, and, uh, and pick a, a service that you can help us serve. Uh, we need help uh, welcoming people. Uh, the security team will need extra hands. And then also our children's ministry is in huge need of volunteers. So that's a mouthful talking about Easter Sunday, I know. Uh, and, uh, but it is so critical that we prepare ourselves for what God's going to do that day. And I know he's going to do a tremendous work on Easter Sunday. So with that being said, let's go to the Lord in prayer. And we'll ask God to just prepare us for uh, the message here this morning. I think it's going to be one that's encouraging to us and, and, and challenging to us at the same time. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit of God, Lord, we thank you for this day. And we thank you, God, for your presence in this place and in our life. God, we thank you for the reality that, that God, we can, uh, we can have salvation through Christ Jesus, and it's all because he was willing to go to the cross and die for the wages of our sin, Lord, but in three days was raised from the dead. And so, Father, we celebrate not only the death, burial, but also the resurrection of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we gather here today, God, uh, in a spirit of celebration and worship, uh, knowing that, God, you desire to speak into our hearts as we not only lift up our voices in song and adoration and, 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 and prayer, but, God, also through the reading and the preaching of your word. And so, Father, I pray that as we prepare to dive into your word this morning, God, that you would, you would uh, help us to set aside every distraction that may exist in our life. God, help us to set aside every distraction that we may hear from you. And God, as we read through your word and we preach through your word, God, may you speak uh, clearly into our hearts. We love you so much and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go ahead and open them up to Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. That's where we're gonna go this morning, the, uh, the Gospel of Mark. We're gonna be in chapter 14 here together this morning. Um, you know, we started walking through a few weeks ago the Gospel of Mark, as we were uh, trying to take a look at the, the Passion Week of Christ, or uh, as some would say, the Holy Week. And, and what we mean by the Passion Week or the Holy Week is that last and final week leading up to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, uh, and, and obviously uh, resurrection that we celebrate on Easter Sunday. So it's the last week of Jesus' life on this earth. Now, uh, before the cross. Now, we know that after the cross, he, he stuck around for a, a brief time before he ascended into heaven. So, 
Uh, I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about that last week of, of ministry to this earth, uh, to this world, the last week of Jesus' death before the cross. And we started by talking about the triumphal entry of Jesus. As he prepared to, to come into Jerusalem, he, he, he rode in on a small donkey. Uh, the, the word of God tells us, and on this, this donkey, he came into, uh, into Jerusalem, and he was celebrated as the, uh, the, the coming king of Israel. And so there were a lot of people celebrating the arrival of the king that had been prophesied over the over the years, and, and so they fully recognized Jesus as the king who was coming in to Jerusalem, and, uh, and, and we begin to talk about how uh, things begin to change as soon as he rode into town. There, was, there, was, uh, there were people who were shouting, Hosanna to the highest as he rode into town, but real quickly throughout that week, things begin to shift, and people begin to push back on who Jesus was, and, and, and ultimately, as we're going to see as we finish out this series, is that people who, the people who cried Hosanna upon his arrival are the same people who are shouting, crucify him to take him to the cross. And so, a very, uh, a very important truth for us to understand as we read through uh, the, the gospel's uh, account on the Passion Week. And so we've been talking about this. But by the time we get to chapter 14, things are beginning to sort of take a turn for the worse for Jesus. Now, remember, and this is hugely important for us to understand, this is all part of God's plan. This isn't that Jesus got caught up in some mob in Jerusalem and they were out to get him. And, and you know, he, he unfortunately found himself in a, on a dark alley and, you know, he ended up on the cross. This is not what happened here. What we know uh, from, from the truth of God's word is the reality that this was all part of God's plan. And so everything we're looking at here in this Passion Week, uh, leading up even to the people who begin to get very angry and as the mobs uh, uh, developed and as people begin to deny and condemn Christ, um, we all know that this is part of God's plan. But by the time we get to chapter 14, 14 things are beginning to sort of take a turn for the worse for Jesus. We have, just before the passage that we're gonna look at today, we have the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. And so Judas has just left the, uh, the group of disciples. He's gone to uh, the people who are looking to arrest Jesus, and he's gone, and he's gonna be the, the guy who t basically turns Jesus in. And, and, and then Jesus sits down with the, the remaining disciples there, and he celebrates the Passover with them, this, this dinner that he is, this last uh, supper, if you will, that he is having with his disciples. And, and it, then it's there that he also institutes the Lord's Supper, that which we celebrate when we celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ Jesus. We still do that, do this to this day. We celebrate the Lord's Supper together as a faith family. And so Jesus is doing this with his disciples. And he's spending this time with them. He's, 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 he's sort of enjoying these last moments. And then we come to the text that we're gonna look at today, uh, chapter 14 of Mark's gospel, starting with verse 32 and reading through verse 42. And so read this with me, if you will, here as we begin to see this, this story that takes place. Uh, and, and I would just remind you, this is more than a story. This is really a divine appointment that has taken place in Jesus and the disciples' life. And it's here that everything begins to change. 
And so read this with me, if you will, starting with verse 32. It says, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. And that's Jesus and his disciples that we're talking about. And he said to his disciples, he said, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible with you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and he prayed, saying the same words. And he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came, to, uh, he came the third time and he said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough, the hour has come, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And so this is the, this is the story, this is the happening that's taking place just uh, right there between the moment when Judas left the disciples and he went out and he got the, the chief priests and all the others that were gonna come and, uh, and arrest Jesus and he's just enjoyed the, the last supper with his disciples. Then he moves into Gethsemane, this garden in Gethsemane, and as he arrives there, this begins to play out and this is just before Judas and the others are gonna show up and Jesus will be arrested. And so things are beginning to take a turn for the worse. But there's so much depth to this passage. There's so much that is taking place in this passage. And maybe you're here today and you've read through this or at least you've heard through this passage over the years as this passage was preached just about probably every Easter. It's something that we have from time to time gone through and read through certainly. But, but here there's so much depth and there's so much to learn about Jesus and his disciples in this last uh, final hours that we are reading about here just before he goes to the cross. Now, the text begins with these words. The passage that we're looking at, it begins with these words. It says, they went to a place called Gethsemane. Now, Gethsemane, it literally means the olive press or the oil press, referring to olive oil. And so it's a place uh, located just on the slope of the Mount of Olives. If you remember, we talked about the Mount of Olives uh, in the first sermon of this series as we talked about Jesus staging up there just before he rode in and his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And so Jesus had staged up there. We talked about how this was a place where uh, a place of refuge and a place of restoration, a place of 
peace for Jesus. It was a place that, that they often visited all around this area near Jerusalem, this place, this mountain, if you will, where there were olive trees everywhere. But this is a special garden that Jesus has entered into, and it's a place called Gethsemane, and it literally means the olive press, where they would literally press the olives to extract the, the oil from the olives. And so this is where Jesus has come to. And as we read this story, we begin that this is we begin to realize that this is a story and a place that is worth mentioning because it has such significance uh, considering all that has happened here. In fact, it is so important that all four gospels are going to give a record or they're going to record this account that took place. All four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all tell this story. And so they're all sharing this story, and there's so much here for us to glean from this passage. Now, one of the things we realize, and, and I just mentioned this a few minutes ago, but it was not by accident that Jesus was here. This wasn't something that he just, you know, found himself in, the, in, a, in a bad place at a bad time. This wasn't what was happening. Jesus was very systematically and, and intentionally carrying out the will of the Father. He has entered into Jerusalem. He is preparing to go to the cross. This is something he must do for the atonement of sin. And so he knows this. He is preparing for this. And he is moving into this place to spend some time in prayer, which is often something that he would do. And he's spending time in, prepare, in prayer preparing for that which he must do, and that is to die on the cross. But one of the things that we notice about this place, this place called Gethsemane, is that we begin to notice that Gethsemane was a place of heavy burden, a place of heavy burden. One of the things that we begin to see in Jesus that we haven't really seen in Jesus before is the weight that he was carrying as the savior of the world. You know, if you remember the stories of Jesus as he walked from village to village and town to town, often Jesus would go to these places and there would be people who, would, who he would heal. There would be pay, people who he fed. He would take care of the poor. Jesus was, was uh, carrying out ministry the way Jesus could only carry out ministry. And so he began to draw huge crowds and people would see the way Jesus was doing things. And, 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 and it just seems as, as you look at Jesus, Jesus' life through the Gospels that he really just didn't seem to have a care in the world, that all of his trust and all of his faith was on the Father, and the Father had sent him to carry out his will, and Jesus even reminds us over and over and over throughout the Gospels that he is there to carry out the will of the Father, and so that's very important for us to understand, and so Jesus just seemed to be this guy who was just on top of the world, nothing bothered him, and suddenly in this place, in the final days of his life, before he would hang on the cross and be crucified to death, before this moment, we see where Jesus goes into this garden, and this garden is a place of heavy burden. Now, We've titled this message, The Sorrowful Savior. And there's reason why we've titled it this is because this is what we begin to see in Jesus. This, this sorrowful, this sadness, this despair 
that, that we begin to see. And, and I don't know about you, but as I read this, it almost breaks my heart because I love Jesus so much and I'm so thankful for what Jesus has done in my life. And, I, and I, I'm fully aware of the, the sacrifice that he made to atone for my own sin. It's me that deserves a place on the cross, but yet it's him who went there. And so as I think about my Savior that way, it breaks my heart that he had to do this for me. And so we see this and we understand what is happening here, but we read this story and we begin to understand the distress and the heavy burden that was placed on Jesus. And I think there's several reasons why that is true, and we're going to be looking at those here together. But it says here in verse 33, it says, and he took with him Peter and James and John, and look at this, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Jesus was under a heavy amount of pressure. He was, he was dealing with what was to come. And it says in verse 34, and he said to them, my soul is sorrowful. Jesus was dealing with something that he had never dealt with before. Jesus was dealing with the reality that he was to go to the cross you see, as we read through this, we begin to understand the pain that Jesus was feeling, the suffering that he was dealing with. It says in verse 35, and going a little bit further, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, this hour might pass from him. And so he's speaking of the reality that he is gonna take on the wrath of God. And in fact, he goes on to say here, as we read through this, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, this hour passed from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible. Remove this cup from me if it's your will. But he says, I'm willing to do what it is that you want me to do. And so he is praying to the Father and he's acknowledging to the Father, this is not something I'm looking forward to doing. If there's any other way for the sin of humanity to be atoned for, I'm all open ears. That's what Jesus is saying in his prayer. He said, I wish there was another way. But the reality is Jesus knows that there is no other way. The reality is Jesus knows the purpose in which he has come. The reality is he knows that while we were yet still sinners, he would have to die for us. And so the reality is Jesus knows that he must go to the cross. You see, for 33 years, Jesus has been exposed to the sorrows of life that people deal with. He's seen how people have suffered. He's seen the suffering of people in so many different ways. He's witnessed what goes along and what comes with a fallen world. He understands this. Things like disease and sickness and loss and poverty and hunger and all of these things Jesus has witnessed as just a man who is living his life on this earth doing ministry and he's witnessed this and he's understood the wages of sin. He's understood the toll that it takes on people and he knew that he had to go to the cross. And let me just say this. This was the last thing that the enemy wanted to take place. Satan himself is literally tempting Jesus in this moment to give up going to the cross. In fact, this passage is known as the last temptation of Jesus. It's the last moment in which the, the enemy, Satan himself, the devil, has to stop Jesus from going to the cross. And Jesus is dealing with the 
burden that he is carrying, the weight of the world, if you will. And Jesus wins if he goes to the cross. And so uh, the enemy knows this and, and he is, is really tempting Jesus to give up. And Jesus knows that when temptation comes, there's only one thing that you can do, and that's pray. And so Jesus goes to the Father in prayer. Make no mistake that the pressure that Jesus felt was real. The, the pressure and the, the, the suffering that he was bearing was very real. Jesus was fully God and fully man. We know that. The scriptures teach us that he was fully God, yet fully man. And so in his humanity, he is dealing with this. He doesn't wanna go to the cross. He understands what the crucifixion is, and he, he does not want to do this, but he knows that he must, and it weighs heavy on him. I love how Luke gives us a little more insight to this moment when Jesus is praying. Luke says this, he describes it like this, Jesus being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. He knows he will suffer, he knows that he will become the sin on the cross. He knows that he will be rejected by his nation. He knows that he will be denied by his disciples. He is about to be tried and condemned, but he came to save us, amen? He came to save us. How many of you are excited about that, amen? He came to save us. I look at this, moment in Jesus' life. And like I said earlier, my heart breaks that, that our Savior would have to go through all that he went through because those were our sins he was dying for. Those were our sins that he was atoning for. It would be his blood that would be spilled when it was my blood that deserved to be spilled. And so we look at this story and it just, it just sort of weighs heavy on us, but the reality is we know that he came for this purpose. And so it becomes one of those moments in our life where we, we celebrate his, his willingness. We celebrate his sacrifice. We celebrate the resurrection of Christ Jesus, which becomes really the most significant event in history as it relates to our salvation. And so Gethsemane was a place of heavy burden. But here's what I also want you to see. Gethsemane was a place of prayer. It was a place of prayer. And this becomes very important because as we look at what Jesus is doing, it's very important for us to recognize exactly what Jesus did in the moments of bearing such a heavy burden. Jesus turned to the Father. Jesus turned to prayer. In the moment which would be his, his, the second most agonizing moment of his life, only second to the cross, in Jesus' most dire situation, Jesus turns to the Father in prayer. And so it becomes a place of prayer. Now we've looked at where Jesus went to the garden in prayer, and we understood that Jesus, he, he had a need for prayer. He, he knew that prayer was the answer 
during the midst of this, oftentimes Jesus would go to a garden and he would seek solitude. And it was there that he would spend time in prayer. And so I don't know about you, but for me, as I look at this story and as I think about all the other stories I know where Jesus removed himself for prayer, it begins to challenge me to consider my prayer life as I face those things that weigh heavy on my life, as I face those circumstances in life that I must face. And I often wonder, do I go enough to the Father in situations like that? Jesus has set the example for us. Jesus has set the example by going to the garden and spending time in the Father. And one of the most interesting things to me about this is that this time he takes with him Peter James and John, he takes with him. Now, oftentimes, Jesus would get away sometimes, and he would remove himself from the disciples, and he would take these three with him. They, they became great leaders in the church, even after Jesus ascended into heaven. And so we have these three that Jesus takes with them. And as we continue to read through this passage, we begin to see that there are some lessons that we can take away from this passage as well, other than just knowing that Jesus went to the Father in his greatest hour and need. And so we look at this and we begin to realize that he takes those three people in there with him to teach them what I believe is two very important truths for us this morning. I wanna give you these here this morning. Two takeaways, if you will, from this passage as we look at the life of the disciples. Here's the first thing. Jesus teaches them of the need for spiritual watchfulness. I know that's a mouthful, but let me say that again. Jesus teaches them for the need of spiritual watchfulness. We all know those famous passages where Jesus, where the word of God teaches us that we have an enemy. His name is the devil, and he prowls around like a roaring lion doing what? Looking to devour, right? And that we need to be what? Ever watchful of an enemy. And so this is what we see here where Jesus uh, introduces to them a need for watchfulness. But here, he's not necessarily talking about an enemy who's seeking to destroy them. He's talking about the temptations that they would embrace that would ultimately become distractions for them in their relationship with Christ. And so here, it's a little bit of a different twist, but he teaches them the need for spiritual watchfulness. Watchfulness, if you don't already know, is a gift from God, I believe, to help us overcome the weakness of flesh. Every one of us here deal with this wrestling as believers in Christ Jesus. We deal with the wrestling between the, the spirit and, and the flesh. I mean, there's a, there's a part of us that wants to pursue God and pursue his holiness and pursue his righteousness, but at the same time, we often give in to the temptation to satisfy the flesh. And so here, one of the most powerful things that truths that Jesus is teaching these three that he would go on to, or they would go on to teach the rest of the world as Jesus ascends into heaven and, and he, he launches the church or founds the church, uh, he teaches them this spiritual watchfulness and how important it is because spiritual watchfulness allows us to see temptation coming and it prompts us to the next important thing, which is prayer. When we begin to see temptation coming our way, it should prompt us to turn immediately toward prayer. I wanna show you something here. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, we see something really remarkable. As, as Paul is writing to the Corinthians, he writes these words. He says, no temptation 
has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Now, let me just stop right there for just a moment. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. I can't tell you how many hundreds, if not thousands of people that I have met with and even myself considered this thing. Well, I don't know if I can bear any more than, than, than what I've got right now. How many of you ever been in a place, a situation, a circumstance in your life where you feel like it's more than you can bear? The temptation is greater, where, where maybe uh, the, the enemy is tempting you with, with a particular whatever, and it just seems as though that temptation is greater than you can bear. And oftentimes we will say, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with this, I'm dealing with this, but that temptation is great. But here's what's really remarkable. Paul says this. He says, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Now look at this. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape. You see that? He will provide a way of escape. Of escape. He says, he will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Here's what Paul is saying. We need to always be watchful for temptation. And when it comes... God gives us a way out. He gives us a way out. We see that temptation. We're ever watchful for the dangers of temptation and we flee from it. Proverbs 22.3 says this, a prudent person foresees danger and takes precautions. The simpleton goes blindly on and suffers the consequences. That's exactly what what we're seeing here in this passage. And and so we see that Jesus is is reminding them of being ever watchful, but he's also reminding them of the importance of prayer. Now, after finding them asleep, he tells them, watch and pray. Remember, when Jesus arrived, he takes the three, and he takes them into the Garden of Gethsemane, and as he goes into the garden, he tells them what? He says, watch. That's all he tells them. He says, watch. An hour later, he returns and they're asleep. And so Jesus says to Simon Peter, he says, Simon, I think it's interesting that he called him the name that he had previously had, but that's another sermon for another day. But he calls him Simon. He says, Simon, are you asleep? Of course he's asleep. He's exhausted, right? He's sound asleep. He wakes him up and then he encourages him. He says, be watchful. He says, watch again. He says, watch, but this time he says, watch and pray. And so it becomes very important what Jesus is teaching the disciples. We begin to see this thing. He says here in verse 38, watch and pray for what? That you may not enter into temptation. And then Jesus says these words, which are so powerful. He says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. What I believe Jesus is doing here is he is affirming, he is affirming the reality that they were probably exhausted. He, I think what Jesus is saying is, he's saying to these disciples, I know that you wanted to stay awake. I don't think you just intentionally disobeyed me and went to sleep. I know you're exhausted. He's saying your, your spirit, your heart wanted to stay awake and you wanted to be watchful, but the flesh is weak. And so he's, he's pointing out this reality that the flesh will lead us into temptation. What was the temptation in this situation? To sleep instead of worship, right? And so he teaches them this truth and he lays this before them. I really believe that Jesus was not scolding them, but rather he was exhorting them 
to be aware of the weakness of flesh. And so we see here where Jesus is saying, listen, why are you sleeping when you can pray? Why are you not being watchful when you can pray? And the whole point that he's trying to make is that there are the distractions that exist in our life. To not follow Jesus, to not follow God, to not, to not be where we need to be. Let me ask you a question here this morning. How many of you in your prayer life have ever been distracted? All of us, right? Most all of us, except for the few of you that are perfect in here, right? But uh, most of us, I mean, I, I'll, I'll be the first to admit, there have been times in my life where, you know, I, I'll start out in a, a time of prayer, and it goes something like this. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, did I forget the milk? You ever had a prayer like that? Because you realize your wife told you to pick up the milk on the way home. You got home, you went to your prayer closet, you were going to do some real spiritual things like worship Jesus, and in the midst of that, you realize you forgot the milk, and now you're more concerned for the wrath of Linnell than you are the wrath of God. Have you ever been there before? Amen. Husbands, have you ever been there before where you're just praying and suddenly there's a distraction? And it's funny how you continue to pray as you run out the door and you get in your truck and you go get that milk. You, you know what I'm talking about? You're like, what have I done? You know, I mean, it, it's, it's funny how distractions can spring up in the midst of prayer and yet it distracts us from our presence, the presence of God. We have an opportunity to spend time with God and yet we find ourselves distracted, surrendering the time with God and, and to our own flesh and our own mind and our own thoughts and all the things that stand in the way of that worship. How many of you ever fallen asleep in the middle of a prayer? I haven't, but I was just wondering how many of y'all had. <laughs> you ever been exhausted? I mean, just totally exhausted. And you start off praying, you know, you start praying and it's something like this. You say, Father, I love you so much. And then the alarm goes off. You ever, <laughs> and you realize you never even finished that thing. There are so many distractions in our life. I look at this and I wonder, how is it then that we fight the weakness of flesh? I love what John MacArthur says. He says this, he says, the means of grace to overcome iniquity, to be victorious, to be is vigilant prayer. Yes, we have a high priest praying for us that our faith fail not, but we will lose the battle with temptation along the way if we don't pray and depend on divine strength rather than the confidence in our own human strength. The disciples were exhausted. That's why they fell asleep. But they were depending on their own strength in this moment, this opportunity, when Jesus needed them most. And they fell to the temptation of the flesh. They gave in to their exhaustion and surrendered what was most beautiful in their life in the moment, and that was time with Jesus. How do we fight the weakness of flesh? I believe, first of all, we look to Jesus we look to Jesus, look at the temptation that Jesus faced in Gethsemane, and yet he persevered. Jesus was facing the greatest temptation that he had ever faced in his life. He faced three in the desert with the devil. Throughout the way, he faced several more. We see where he tells Peter, get behind me, Satan, recognizing that this was nothing more than temptation. 
But now Jesus, in his final hours, he faces the greatest temptation of all. And yet he overcomes. I think about our life and the need for us to overcome temptation in our life. And I, I can't think of a better example to look at than the life of Jesus, to look at our Savior. In fact, Hebrews tells us to keep our eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus when we're fighting the flesh. Be spiritually watchful. Keep your head on a swivel. Always be aware that there is an enemy who wants to destroy your life. Always be aware that even the fleshly desires of who we are in our humanity will spring up and distract us from Christ. And then finally, pray. And I would say pray when you're rested. <laughs> that makes it a little bit easier. But for heaven's sakes, pray. Spend time with the Lord. Spend time in prayer. Spend time in his word. The disciples were willing, but they were exhausted. In the 33 years of Jesus' life, he saw the sorrows that life brings our way. He saw it. He witnessed it. He understood the hardships that we face. He understood everything that we go through. He recognized the things that affect us in such powerful ways. He understands when we feel pain and we feel at loss. He understands when we are going through the most difficult circumstances. He understands and he recognizes when we sense that we can't take anymore. Jesus lived for 33 years being exposed to those truths. And I believe one of the reasons that we see Jesus suffering so much, so sorrowful, as a Savior who prepares to go to the cross, is that we, as we read through the Gospels and we see this reality about Jesus, we can know this truth that Jesus understands perfectly what we're dealing with. The sorrows that we face, He faced those same sorrows. In fact, to give us relief from sorrows and the pains of this life, to give us relief from the wages of the sin in our life, he went to the cross. He went to the cross. And it would be on the cross that he would hang and he would be crucified. It was on the cross that his body would be broken. It was on the cross that his blood would be spilled out onto the ground for the atonement of our sin as he gave his life as the perfect sacrifice. It was on the cross that Jesus died. But Sunday was coming. How many of you celebrate that truth with me this morning? Sunday was coming. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, the most significant event in a Christian's life. Sunday was coming. And on Sunday, Jesus would be raised from the grave. He would have victory over sin and death, providing for us a way of salvation 
that we may no longer spend an eternity separated from God, but that we would spend our life eternal in the glories of the Father, in His beauty, in His majesty, in everything that He is. Our life on this earth is just a speck compared to the eternity that we will spend with the Father. And Jesus has made a way for us to do that. Amen? Amen? Man, sometimes y'all scare me. I thought I was going to have to go back and preach about the disciples sleeping for a moment. We have so much to be worth thankful for. So much to celebrate in the worthiness of Christ as the sacrificial lamb that he became for us. So much to celebrate. And I pray that this morning as I get ready to close out this service, as I get ready to pray, as I get ready to to just wrap this service up with a word of prayer that you would find yourself thanking Jesus for what he's done. The disciples in this story, they had a, a beautiful opportunity to pray and they didn't. This morning, we have an opportunity to spend time in prayer. Oftentimes, this last moment of the service is sort of seen as that that time where we're required to stand up and sing the, the last song. The lyrics are on the screen. The band has come out. It's sort of expected of us. But maybe God is just calling you to pray. That's your greatest act of worship this morning, just to spend time with the Lord. Just to spend time with the Lord with a thankful heart for everything that Jesus has done for us. To worship Jesus. To not be asleep at the will, but to worship Jesus for everything he is and everything he has done. So this morning, after I pray and as the band comes and leads us in this time of worship, would you respond to whatever it is that God's laid on your heart? I'm down front, our pastors are down front. We're here to spend time with you and pray with you if that's something that you would want us to do. We're here after the services to answer any questions. But whatever it is that God's speaking into your heart this morning, let's not deny that. Let's worship Jesus because he is worthy.